0: Ki jayi, ki so Jai, Jai, Good evening everyone. Welcome. Bienvenido. Any questions tonight? Yes. Um, you spoke about the Mukya Vritti and the Lakshan Vritti. I wasn't necessarily understanding. Which book? Mukya Vritti, remember? About Mukya Vritti and Lakshan Vritti, yeah. I wasn't quite understanding. Mukhi-virti, lakshan vritti. Mukhi means, in this context, Mukhi means direct. Hmm? Lakshan means, in this context, indirect. Um, so in in the sacred text, among other types of expression, we have the mukhi and the lakshan vritti, and there are divisions within those, but just dealing with those, broader character, character, categories, Mugivirti is like, I say something, and the direct meaning applies. Lakshinvirti means I say something, but the direct meaning doesn't really apply. Therefore, there's a need to draw an indirect meaning from it. So, the classic example is, if I say, Dharma lives on the Ganges. Well, directly what that says is that she's living floating on the water. Hmm? So, that doesn't make sense. So, because the the Mukheriti doesn't make sense, therefore, we understand that it should be interpreted in an indirect way, which means, oh, she's living on the bank of the Ganges, but it's just, you know, a matter of, um, um, means of expression to say she lives on the Ganges. She doesn't actually literally, directly, Mukheriti live on the Ganges. That would be Problem. Hmm? So the scriptures have direct statements and then they have just statements that can't be um, interpreted directly, and therefore the Lakshmi Priti so the, the, the In a very broad sense, this applies to Gaudiya Vedanta as opposed to Dvaita Vedanta. Because in Dvaita Vedanta, the uh, Acharya Shankar says that all of the statements about God's form, eternality, qualities, lila, and so forth, they have to be interpreted indirectly. Hmm? That's his idea. And so, although there are many, many thousands of statements like that, he wants to interpret them indirectly. Um, But from Godi Vedanta's perspective, perspective, there's no need to do that. Hmm? We're not following the Advaita Vedanta perspective. And... Um, we feel that there's that that the, he takes the license that to interpret there. That's 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 not um, appropriate. Doesn't uh, doesn't uh, a- and I should say in the context of saying that, he makes up the idea that there are two levels of Brahman. Brahman meaning the absolute. One is the Nirguna Brahman, and one is the Saguna Brahman. So he, he says that Brahman is one, undifferentiated, but um, appears as Ishwar, as God, in the world, like Krishna, for example. And this is a manifestation of Brahman in, in, with Nirguna, which means with qualities. Here he means with sattva And this is a provisional manifestation of Brahman in this world, that, that one takes advantage of, meditates on, and then goes into the transcendental realm, and, and that uh, leela qualities, form, and so forth of God no longer exist. Hmm? So he has these two tiers of Brahman, Nirguna Brahman and Saguna Brahman. But that, if you read my Bhagavad Gita commentary in the twelfth chapter, where there's a discussion about, the chapter is about bhakti, it's actually the, the chapter about bhakti, the end of the six chapters and center that are about bhakti, but the t- chapter itself is entitled Bhakti Yoga. And there I've given an explanation. The subject there is, Arjuna asked the question, what's better, to meditate on you as a devotee and serve you, or to try to conceptualize the unconceptual Brahman and so forth? And Krishna weighs in and he says, it's better to be my devotee, this is better. So in that section, uh, I found the opportunity to, in a commentary to bring out this where in the Vedanta Sutra, in his commentary Shankar inserts this two tiers of Brahman that's not taken from the text. He adds something to the text, invents this idea. Hmm? And Krishnadass in Chaitanya Charitamrita says Vyas Brunta, If you want to understand Shankar. He's saying that Vyas, the author of the sutras, is crazy. So let me tell you what it actually means. It's a very kind of <laughs> um, derogatory statement about the about Shankar's perspective. Um, um, so he didn't have much appreciation for that, for good reason. So he, he he conveniently adds that in, and then just goes on with it from there. And on the basis of that, he says. Therefore, the direct statements about the eternality of the form, the qualities, the leelas of, of Krishna can't be accurate because there's two tiers of Brahman, so we take it indirectly, and so he makes up this whole... Um, um, well, he takes all those statements indirectly, whereas we say there's no need to take them indirectly. There's a philosophy, an underlying philosophy that uh, of Vedanta. There's a number of them. Mm, shuddha dweta dweta dweta, beta beta dweta of the other Vaishnavacharyas that are all drawn from the sacred text, supported by them and so forth, and posit the eternality of the Godhead. And anyway, your idea of two tiers of Brahman is made up, and how can there only be Brahman and there is no world? When there is a world, same time, and it's it's the it's kind of the Achilles heel of the, of the Advaita Vedanta. So, right, right. Well, he says the world isn't real. There's only Brahman. And then he said, "Well, well then, what is, what is the appearance of the world?" He said, "Well, it's a superimposition on Brahman. Whatever, you know, that's supposed to mean." And, and so it's uh, it's it's a very harsh form of non-duality hmm? that's uh, that's really not supportable by the sacred texts. So. Um, so uh we on the other hand take all the statements um about the personality of God, his eternality and so forth, eternality of his Leela and qualities and and on and directly. And there's every reason to. And but there are certain sections, certain statements that need to be taken in indirectly, and so when that's appropriate we do so, but that's the that's the minority. I take the majority of the texts and have to explain them. Indirectly is what Shankar's task is. So that's the basic idea. And you know, it applies, these are Sanskrit terms, it applies in English language. I mean, there are uh, cases where you can take a statement on its face and, face and other times, if you do, it won't make any sense. So you, but if you know the language, you don't think about it. I'm taking this logic and am taking this Mukhi, but you just do it automatically and you live it. You're living the language and so forth. So, but that's the basic idea. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. lakshmi Um, Yeah, only if there's a need. It has to be. But as I say, we can well explain the need for a personality of Godhead, eternal, eternal personality. But if the self is to be a lover, ultimately to experience the fullness of the Ananda aspect of itself, as I've explained then, as much as love is evaluated on a scale of reciprocity. Hmm. In love, we seek reciprocation with another. The idea in love is that you and I become one, not in a way that cancels you and I out, but as they often say, you and I become we. So it's a third thing. union of the two that uh, somehow preserves their individuality at the same time. Something like changing hearts. I'll take your heart, you take mine. I mean, we can only speak about it kind of metaphorically. But love is about, as much about union as it is about difference. There have to be the two hmm, in order to make the union. And it has to be a dynamic union, not a union that cancels one another out into a void. That certainly is an empty idea, if you will, of love. So, so if the self is a unit of love, a unit of ananda, it exists, it's a knowing uh, entity, uh, it's the foundation of the capacity to know, to apprehend, and it's a unit of bliss or has capacity to love, um, being full, it can give. So uh, to... If love, as I say, is evaluated or graded on a scale of reciprocation, then to love unto oneself, alone, is would be at the bottom of that scale. If then we were to take the low end of love and then relate it to the world and show compassion for the world, that's one thing where there's some reciprocation. So even you find the Gyanis, the Buddhists, where they speak about compassion... That's such a high thing, and so forth. So they're really saying what we're saying in in that sense that love has to have an object to repose itself in, to be meaningful. But in in those perspectives, of course, the world vanishes, and and um, whereas in our perspective, then there is possibility of movement and transcendence, and there's a significant consciousness other which is our source, Krishna, that we can have reciprocal uh, dealings with. So from Atmananda, the joy of the self, to Bhakti Ananda. What Bhakti Ananda is, is exploiting the potential of the Atmananda, of the bliss of the self, and giving it an object to repose its loving capacity in, hmm? and then get the reciprocation that far exceeds its own individual capacity to to taste bliss. hmm? Makes it seem small in comparison. So, from Atmananda to Bhakti Ananda, it's, a, it's a, um, an important uh, development. And this is a very uh, beautiful contribution that devotional Vedanta makes to the world of, uh, to, the, to, the, to the realm of mysticism. Hmm? Because, as I often say, it, it's such a big thing to move from I am this or I am that. The I am, which is the only thing that's constant in the identifying, identification with this or that. This or that is not constant. That I am is constant. If I say I am American, I am an Indian, I am a man, I am a woman, all these things can change. Right? I am this or that. This or that means American, Indian, woman, man. Today you can change your gender, so... You could be a man, and then you could become a woman in the same lifetime. So, in each of these things, I am a man, for example, I am a woman, the one thing that's constant is what? I am. That's what's constant. The other things are changing. Hmm? And no matter how you change that identification to this, to man, to woman, to... This country to that country, this religion to that religion, if you will, uh, as a belief system, then um, none of that is as big as just I am that's a huge thing it's the one thing that's constant the thing that doesn't fade that doesn't come and go it's not here today and gone tomorrow, so therefore, most mystics they are just silenced by that I am. And eternal shanti, 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 quietude, peace, there's nothing to be said. Hmm. I am. And it's, it looms so large that, that all of the possibilities of what you could be by identification with matter just fade and seem insignificant, meaningless. They, they, they appear to be delusion and so resting in this i am to to arise from the that rest and ask the extremely bold and provocative question hmm, is there anything more than i am i am this or that is much less but is there any is there any more hmm? and this would the devotional schools of Vedanta do it, and in, in, in the Bodhi in the Vedanta, they, they do it in the most, um, in a most provocative sense, most boldly. Hmm. Um, I've given an example before of being in negative numbers and coming to zero is a plus. So the karmic world of I am this or that is negative numbers. We come to zero. That's a positive zero. But then to ask, are there any positive numbers in, in the zero group Everyone's going. What we just gave up numbers, man. You want numbers again? No, no. I'm thinking. Are there any positive numbers? There's nothing positive. We left the positive. We left that. We come. It was all negative. So, so it's a very provocative question. It's very. Um, it, 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 it 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 turns the whole thing on its head and and um, and makes for considerable. From silence to considerable discourse. In other words, if, if the world is namrupa, forms and names, forms that I give names to. So I leave the world of Nam Rupa, forms and names, and I just am. But now to speak about forms and names that that that, that, that are that, that are as enduring as the I am. Like here. The self animates matter. Hmm? But on the other side, in the positive numbers, the world that world is animated. It's more animate than I am, which leads to stillness. Hmm? It's moving. Again, you have bhakti, is what we're talking about, is moving Bhagwan. Hmm? Brahman is still, Bhagwan is moving. Hmm? So we animate the world. We are animate. Big difference. But in the positive numbers, if you will, we are inquiring into an animated world, the world of Bhagavan, of our source. Hmm? So then in relation to him, in bhakti we become super animated. (laughs) Therefore, beyond Satchitananda is the Sandini, Ladini. this idea of super-existence, super-knowing. I know myself to be the friend of Krishna. Hmm? Super-loving, an hmm? In intimacy with the Absolute, that is so powerful, the loving, that the knowing of his Godhood is, is suppressed by it, hmm? making possible the intimacy. It's a very provocative, a thought-provoking idea that uh, lends to considerable more uh, discussion than just I am, which is huge hmm? and easy to follow really I mean there's very common sense statements by the Buddha he sat down under a tree and figured it out that that desire for things is the cause of suffering so I should stop desiring and be silent sit it's kind of hard to refute that because as soon as you have a desire then you've got to work you've got to do something to pursue it and then And the fact that whatever you pursue, however much you like it, is a problem because it doesn't endure. And so, therefore, the ups and downs of life, when we actually seek stability. hmm? We like the highs, but as high as it goes is as low as it gets as well. hmm, The ocean of material, emotion. So we're looking for some peaceful sailing here, hmm? a quiet sea, a flat ocean, and, and then here comes the tidal wave of bhakti, the tsunami of bhakti. Hmm. So it's, it's misunderstood even by transcendentalists what it is. I think it's a big wave of karma mm-hmm. in the sattva guna or something. But no. Hmm. It's animating brahman, even. Causing the ground of being to dance and, and question hmm, his own reality in the form of Krishna questioning his position as he finds himself the source of all attraction, the most attractive person, finds himself attracted to another, to Radha. Mm. What a fascinating theological concept. Mm. So, so much to offer to the discussion, mm. to, uh, to bring discussion into a quiet, quiet sector of I am that everyone is silenced now. Peace, peace, peace. But as I say, we were kids it was peace and love, both things are required. So the peace of zero then moving to the love of bhakti. So anyway, Mukibirti vritti and this is in a very simple way how we can understand it in how we take it in relation to Vidhita Vedanta he's interpreting away the whole the full potential of love really therefore from our perspective the bliss of of Brahman realization is is insignificant again it's like loving unto yourself rather than love in reciprocation with another, giving to another, I mean, it's pretty hard. Self love is is hard in a sense. I mean, it's hard to talk about hmm. because if you think about it psychologically, we need to like ourselves. You know, we can't beat ourselves up all the time. It's so, another thing. Love of the Atma. And the, the Atma is what is lovable in the world. Hmm. Matter is not lovable. In that it has no capacity to reciprocate. I mean, you could love a picture, kind of. You know, I guess you can love a picture. It can. It can. It's kind of a it, like a shanta rasa perspective. Hmm? It's as far as you could you could go with it, and that is, and in when the world of rasa and shanta rasa in bhakti is is, something that is hardly talked about. It's not very interesting. It's it's also a rasa that could change by association to dasya or sakya or vatsalya or marduya, which, the four of which cannot change. They're, they're, they're so dominant in the way they define the person in relation to the absolute. Hmm. And they're moving and they're involved with service and reciprocation and so forth hmm. in, uh, in, in ways that certainly exceed the the aesthetic experience of Chantras is very high on the on the um, on the quiet side, if you will. It is, it is a form of rasa, it is a form of bhakti. So much different than, for example, merging into Brahman, There's No comparison, but still, it's not uh, something that's uh, desirable from the godia uh, perspective. Hmm? So my point was that, that the self, the atma, is the object of love in the world. We, we tend to love things, but only because we've identified with them in a way. And then when I say we've identified with them, it means we've projected ourselves into the things. And we, we think they're either ours, or we would like them to be ours, or somehow we've identified with them and it's the self in them that actually is attractive to us. Hmm. Because the self is what it is. It's conscious consciousness. It's not inert. Hmm. So, as the Upanishads say, it's not love of the wife or the husband, love of the children. It's love of the self that's going on. Unbeknownst to the self, it's the self that we're pursuing in all of our pursuits of love. Hmm. And the Bhagavatam, you see, it takes this same principle, it takes it to another level. And it says, the love of the self is the object of love in the world. Hmm. And why? Because it's a part and parcel of Bhagavan, hmm. who's all lovable, and therefore, um, While the self is the object of love in this world, Bhagavan is the the perfect object of love for the self. The self in relation to matter is really only loving itself. Mm -hmm. It can realize that and love itself, but then to look deeply within itself. Why? What is it that's attractive about itself? Well, it's the part and parcel of something that, someone that's very extraordinary, Mm -hmm. that has the qualities that we have, to the to a much greater degree mm-hmm. it's a bigger bigger capitalist there's more to invest so so we invest ourselves and in the reason that we're lovable is because we're a part and of Barcelona so how much lovable is he That's the point is where the Bhagavatam takes it to another another level mm-hmm. and rightfully so so now we have a significant other in the consciousness world. The way as a unit of loving capacity can have reciprocal dealings with the Madhva and again to, to Bhakti Ananda. What else? Yes. Um, we're reading in the morning uh, currently about the discussion between Mahaprabhu and Sarvabhama. Um And you just brought up a point about, I think it's. The first one the Padma Purana, that says Lord Shiva incarnates in the age of Kali to um, uh, basically... Spread atheism or something. Yeah. I was wondering if that was the first time that that's been said, if Mahaviru in that conversation brought it up for the first time. Because Sarvabhoma, I think it was described to was like pretty stunned. You know, there's a couple of verses like that in the Purana about Shiva incarnating on the on the uh, inspiration of Vishnu to propagate the Mayavad about Mayabhatamasatshastram, mm. about Shastram, It's against the shastra, mm. and it says something about covered Buddhism. Forget the other part of the verse, and. Um, well, what it says is that the Bhattacharya Sarvaboma was very, very learned. Hmm. But, in a, in a sense, what it's saying is that the devotee is more learned than the jnani. I've told you the story before. I'll tell it again. One time I was giving a lecture, and in the crowd, after the lecture, a fellow said, Wow, he said, For a janani, you sure got a lot of bhakta. <laughs> And he said, uh, in our tradition, we're Jananis, and uh, and the Bhaktas are just ladies who love the Guru. <laughs> I said, he said, it seems different here. I said, yeah, that's a little different here. <laughs> and the word is Jnana, not Janan. Hmm? And it's Bhakti in this case, not Bhakta. So I have some Bhakti, and yes, I have some gyan. Hmm? <laughs> You're surprised, right? So it's a, it's a different idea of Bhakti than often what's... Um, presented, for example, by by the Advaitins. Hmm? In the school, bhakti is something for the emotional people. Hmm? Gyan is for the intellectual people, and it has more prestige. But if you're an emotional person, then you can get in all the bhakti and do the ritual, and then you can realize you can become sober at a certain point and realize who you are. So, in one sense, the conversation between about the chartered who was the greatest logician in India. Hmm? at the time, a very learned person, um, who used to school young sannyasis to, in logic of the Vedanta so that they could become firm in their in their vows. Hmm. That was his position. So he sought to do that to the young Chaitanya who was only 24 years old and very beautiful and, and attractive and and, uh, and he had taken the vows of sannyasa at such an early age and the world... Calls on a person that at that age in particular, the whole world is bowing before the youth and wanting their attention and so forth. And so he thought, "I'll, I'll try to strengthen his resolve and I'll explain the Vedanta to him and so forth." And, and of course, he's a bhakta, and and Sarva was portrayed there as a Gani and a Mayavad, and, and so Mahaprabhu begins to speak to him, of course, and and he he, it's like Sarva saying. For a janani, for a bhakti, you should have got a lot of janana, you know. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, uh, he was kind of surprised. That, so the, the point being that the, the bhaktas are not these just emotional people who don't have, aren't grounded in, in scriptural theoretical knowing and Vedanta and so forth. Pujjapacita used to give the example, and I've cited it a number of times, that in Vrindavan, there's no need for scriptural knowledge there, though the gopis are milkmaidens, they don't know the scriptures, and, or, or so it would appear, um, when they come to this world where there's a need of knowledge, there go swamis, and they have comprehensive knowledge of the scriptures and so forth. So the example he gave is that in the United States, you have the most powerful military industrial complex, but you don't see guns and tanks and missiles on the street corners because it would interfere with the peaceful intercourse amongst the people. So, Vrindavan is like that. The knowledge is suppressed because it gets in the way. Mm-hmm. If the power of the knowledge that you're with God was to manifest, then the intimacy that the Leela is about would not proceed. Um, whereas in this world, there's a need for knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, when the gopis come here, we see they have so much knowledge. Mm-hmm. Just like the United States has so much military power, but we don't see it. But if it was attacked, then the missiles would come out and so forth and so on. Hmm? So, so, there's, so bhakti is the, is the end of knowledge. Hmm? And um, there's even a kind of knowledge in bhakti that's called avidya, which means ignorance, literally. There's an avidya shakti hmm, within bhakti, which makes, the, makes for the highest knowing that takes on an appearance of unknowing. The highest knowing. The appearance of unknowing is they don't know that Krishna is God. Hmm? They think Krishna is my friend. Krishna is my son. Hmm? Krishna does wonderful things because God works through him at times. Hmm? That's cool. Hmm? But really, he's just my friend. He's just my son, my lover, and so forth. So this is uh, this is the highest kind of knowing. Hmm? appears as an unknown. So bhakti is very peculiar. It, and it's it said, Vaishnavara, Kriyamudra, Vignana, It's very difficult to understand the Vaishnav. What is his moti- or is there motivation? Why they do things? They can be worldly in appearance, in involvement with things of the world for the service of Krishna that a jnani won't touch. He sees no application. But that's illusion. Hmm. But the bhakti is using all types of things. Hmm. You go to the Himalayas and you chant Chopra, you get rid of those beads, that's all. Material. Hmm. For example, they think that the ornaments of the deity, the prasad, is, is, is material. They think it's good, sattva, but so they don't have a sense of what they're doing. So even the jnanis' the point is have a difficulty understanding the bhaktis. The famous story in the Ninth Canto of the Bhagavatam is Durvas Muni comes to um, visit the king, Ambarish. And he's bathing in the river, and Ambarish is waiting for him to come with his horde of disciples, and the time for breaking the Ekadisi fast comes and his guest has not come, and it would be inappropriate to eat before the guests come. So he drank a little water just to break the fast, and Durvas, by his mysticism, could understood he's broken the fast. And then he came there, and he criticized him, and cursed him, and said, what's this, you know, what kind of host are you you supposed to be? People think you're a great spiritualist, but just see. So he's deprecating, really, the position of the Bhakta. And so, as the bhagavad explains, Krishna's Sudarsam Chakra manifests and started chasing him. Then he went to Brahman, Brahma said, I can't help you. When the Shiva Shiva said, I can't help you. He went to vaikuntha Now you can question how can a person like Durvas, who's not a Shuddha Bhakta, a pure devotee, enter vaikuntha Jiva Goswami gives a nice explanation in the Sandarbhas. He says, Sometimes a king will bring a tiger into his chambers on a leash as entertainment hmm, for the citizens. Similarly, sometimes Narayan lets some people into vaikuntha <laughs> to entertain the inhabitants in terms of their foolishness, especially those who think they're very smart. Hmm? Gyanis, but they have no appreciation for bhakti, which means they're they're more ignorant than the ordinary karmic, hmm? who might not understand bhakti, but might respect it nonetheless. Hmm? You see how Bhagavatam is making its case in so many ways. And so he goes to Narayan to get freed from the chakra, and Narayan says, I can't help you. Brahma couldn't help, Shiva couldn't help, because in Vaikuntha Narayan says, I can't help you, you've offended my devotee, you have to, he has to forgive you. Hmm? I'm controlled by my devotee, so. So he gets a lesson on bhakti from Narayan in Vaikuntha, and then he kind of gets it, right, then he goes to Ambarish, who's been waiting for him for a year to return and hasn't eaten. <laughs> Because his yes hasn't come yet, he's he's he still on hold. So, the story to make the point, you understand. So then uh, he comes and he he starts praising Ambujan. Ambujan says no, no. He takes no offense or anything like that. So so Durvas gets a lesson in bhakti. He was a big mystic, jnani. Hmm? So, the Bhagavatam is full of stories. And here's one of Chetanachar Dvito how bhakti is how the is the bhakti's got a lot of janani. <laughs> bhaktis have a lot, a lot of knowledge. It's the end of knowledge, really. It's, it's not just a sentimental thing, but it's actually well-grounded in, 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 in Vedanta and, uh, and so forth. So Mahaprabhu was pulling out verses that, this is the, one of the points that's being made of, that Sarva who's who was the greatest logician in all of India, wasn't aware of mm-hmm. in the study of the scriptures. So it's a way of saying that the bhaktas have a more comprehensive understanding of the scripture than the Gyanis who only study scripture. That's their preoccupation. That's what they do. And the aphorisms of the Vedanta they're going over them and so on and so forth. And, um, so Mahabhu quotes a verse Sarabhun was not, not, not familiar with, and it explains something about the Mayabad philosophy that Sarabhun himself is a is a uh, has embraced and shortcomings of it, the provisional nature of it, why it was manifest in the world and what its purpose was and so on and so forth. That help? Yeah, that's a nice story. That's a nice story. Mm. So, yeah, now there's there's uh, the, the the ground of Vindavan mm. is, uh, is um, the dust there. Is full of knowledge. Such a place, such a realm. Mm. Again, certainly it's true, bhakti is, love is, is a kind of knowing, very essential kind of knowing, perfect knowing, mm. not just knowing for the sake of knowing. Mm. Action should be informed by knowledge. Mm. So, is action—it's informed by a certain kind of knowledge, knowledge about the object of love—that mm-hmm. compels one to love the object of love and know him in ways that you could not by by knowledge alone. Jesus' mm-hmm. song when we were kids: "To know, know, know you is to love, love, love you," something like that. I think that's one of the '50s songs. yeah? <laughs> No, Mr. Lovam <laughs> uh, that's why I say sometimes you will not find anywhere in any lineage more flattering statements about Krishna than you will find in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Flattering statements about Krishna. A lot of people like Krishna. They say nice things about him. In Gaudiya Vaishnavism, for example, we say Krishna is the source of Narayana. Hmm? That's a huge thing, and, and, and maybe all of us says the same thing in his lineage, but they got it from Godia, people, and, and then we go on from there, and so, in one sense, this is the indication that they know him better, because if you know him, then you love him, and then you say the most flattering things about him. <laughs> He'll, they will come automatically. You'll be you'll be um, driven by that knowing to speak in such ways, and you'll be attracted to that. Obviously, so the devotee is not without without knowing. He comes to the highest knowing, that even that, it, that it, on its surface and appearance looks like an unknowing. Vrindavan looks like an unknowing existence. That's what it looks like. Country people, cow people, they don't know what's up. Sages come in, they worship them, ask for blessings. Meanwhile, the sages think, I could do well to get a blessing from these people, see how they how they love Krishna. It's inconceivable to me. Hmm? He's God, and they're wrestling with him. Hmm, what's what's that? He's God, and this lady's treated him like a son and tying him up. Where am I? who are these people and that's a very important point who are these people is a more important question to answer than who is krishna hmm? who are the people that love krishna what is the position of the devotee hmm? you see these devotees subhal shridham sudham lalita Rupa Manjari, they have the power to be more attractive to a devotee than Krishna even or pretty much the same or a little bit less <laughs> they're very extraordinary hmm. they are the embodiment of love of Krishna and love of Krishna and Krishna are one and different so you can't have Krishna without love of Krishna Savya manu smarami remember to meditate on their service what they're about that's what Our ideal is Mm. so. It's very much Vaishnavism. It's about the devotee. We often say it's easier to dismiss God than it is to dismiss love of God. We may not see God, but we can see love of God in the world. We can see people who are living on love of God, and for all intents and purposes, without any need for anything else. That's attractive. Hmm? Their independence, if you will, from the world, their uncompromised position. If you're dependent, then you're compromised. I'm dependent here, so I've got to go along with the system. They're giving me my meals, so I'll go along with it, something like that. So the devotee is independent, hmm? ultimately. The advanced devotee is independent hmm? in his dependence upon Krishna. It has, In other words, it has a practical Observable result, love of God, properly understood, as embodied in the devotee, he or she is above the world, not in need of the world, hmm? not compromised. But that's superhuman. To be like that, superhuman. You, know, you can find Ganis that are also superhuman in a sense of detachment, and so that's fine. That's that's a beginning, hmm? um, and they. Also, speak about love of God, but they, their idea of God is, would be a limited idea. We are God, and that we are Atma, and as Tatasta Shakti, we're one of the Shaktis of Bhagawan, so Maya Shakti is one of the Shaktis. There's only God in his Shaktis, so we're God, because God means God in his Shaktis, so we're one of his Shaktis. But then, that's a more nuanced explanation than just saying you're God. Hmm? More nuanced. And a big caveat there, big footnote there, that makes for a much more sublime understanding of the of the absolute nature of transcendence. But at any rate, point being that as I say it's easier to dismiss the existence of God because you can't say I haven't seen him. But have you seen love of God? Have you seen somebody like do across culturally, he's nailed on the cross and he says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. that's something that's something to celebrate I mean, that's a big a big thing so Christians would carry the cross if you were the original Catholic Christians and they were persecuted and so forth but they saw something and they took note of it um, the Buddha you know so as like I say it goes across culturally there these mystics pop up and, and express forms of, 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 love, of love of God. Uh, there may not be great m- many examples, but it's a rare thing. Hmm? You only need one. <laughs> you only need one. One who says, I've, I went there. It's like this. And they, and they are so compelled by the experience that their whole life is to talk about it, that it's contagious. Mm. and will stay with the humans forever and never go away such i mean there there are many historic events you know burned in the minds of the people mm. you know you can talk about hitler and world war 2 and a huge event the holocaust for example it's horrific um, but the reason that it stands out is it's so ungodly <laughs> The reason other things stand out is because they're so godly. The more godly it is, or the less godly it is, the more it's going to stand out and and remain notable in human history for some time. The more ungodly you become, the more you're going to stand out. The more godly you become, the more you're going to stand out. So you have your Hitlers and you have your Mother Teresas, and they, they stand out. But here, on the godly side, we're talking about people that have stood out for thousands and thousands of years. Hmm. There may be great moralists and so forth that stand out to a point, but um, you know Nelson Mandela or um, Martin Luther King, or they were great people, and it's Gandhi, hmm. from a moral point of view, they stand out in human history. But they're not going to last, and they're going to have the effect of a Christ or a Buddha. The Trans- actual transcendentalists—they make their imprint on the, on the world. Mm-hmm. So you only one. We've got a few. And, that there's possibility of perfect love is the idea. There's a possibility of the perfect capital G good that you cannot find in the moral realm. Mm-hmm. You cannot make it. You step down here, comes up here. Step down here, comes up here. Seeing that a wise person becomes a transcendentalist, and don't expect your friends to join you; they won't, for the most part. Hmm. But you've seen something. Now well, you have to follow it. <laughs> to be true to yourself, something's been shown to you—special. So you may not even be special within the group of those who've been shown to, but it's a special group, (laughs) so you're special, for sure. Mm. A special calling. Mm. And now you try to answer it as best best as you can with your whole heart, mind, and soul. This is the idea. Give your life to this. Mm. Not to human development and improvement. And you'll become a good human being, obviously, in the context of this as well. That's included in it automatically. Mm. And it won't go off well, of course, With the human development. This is just another attempt to be perfect. Human development—it's a flawed. T- Someone says, "Well, he's a flawed human being." Well, humanity is flawed. That's the given. That will never be, therefore, you know. mm-hmm. a perfect human being who understood that Stop stopped trying to perfect beyond the possibility of that human life lends itself. We say that it, human life does lend itself to perfection by moving intelligently, insightfully, away from the attempt to find perfection within imperfection, hmm? to know its atma, to hmm? know the self, to know God, to be a transcendentalist. Right? Okay. It's good to have you with me jisī goṇe tanaṁ de jāi gurī vāṣṇa guru Parampara parā kī jāi govaṭa bindu kī jāi